Representations in heaven. It's Swedenborg Live. Let's talk about what life is really about. Grow together spiritually and through the perspective that we get, you know, uh, make more sense of things. F feel a little more clarity and peace and ease and all that. Thanks for hanging out. It's super fun to be here with you. Super fun doesn't even cover it. It's ultra super fun to be here with you. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host. And hanging out with me is an exquisite esteemed panel of great people to do a show like this with. Uh, will you guys introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Karin Childs, writer and community manager. Happy Friday and welcome. Glad to have you here. Hello, I'm Cara Dom, a Latin consultant and part of the moderating team. Happy Friday the 13th. <laughs> yes, it is Friday the 13th, isn't it? And I'm Chelsea Odner and I write for the Swedenborgian Life Show. All right, so the way the game is played, if you guys haven't played it before, is we what we are gonna do is talk about whatever you tell us to talk about. So answer, enter your questions in the YouTube chat and we'll you do our best to, to wade through that and see what kind of inspiration hits in the moment. It's a, always a fun conversation. Hey, if you wanna make the conversation go longer, support us. We are not-for-profit. So all of this happens because all of you donate money to make it happen. If you want to support us today, go to, this is a new link. Usually I tell you something else, but pay attention to this, offtheleftei.com slash donate. So if you go there, uh, you can make a donation to support our programming. And there's a couple of special things about you donating during this show, or even if you're watching it afterwards. First of all, if we raise $157 during the show today, and you'll see why it's that number in just a second, we will give you an extra 15 minutes of talk time. Yeah, we'll get to stretch those ideas, have new insights drop in that we didn't get before if we can raise 157 before the show is over. But everything we raise today, and even if you're watching afterwards and you donate, it's all gonna get matched two to one all the way up until December 4th as part of our Bringing Heaven to Earth campaign. We had a very generous donor couple give a matching gift of $10,000. So all the way up to that, we can match. You, your gift goes twice as far. So again, offthelefthat.com slash donate. And the reason it's 157, our magic number for today, is we have our related passage is True Christianity 157. So let's get a little bit in the mood of the week here with this. It says, since our spirit means our mind, just like a really clear definition. Therefore, being in the spirit, as the word sometimes says, refers to the state of our mind when it is separated from our body. In this state, the prophets saw the sort of things that exist in the spiritual world. Therefore, this state is called a vision of God. At those times, the prophet's state was like the state of spirits and angels in the spiritual world. In this state, our spirit can move from place to place while our body stays where it is. We would now call out-of-body experience as is true of our mind's eye. You can think it, you can be there. This is the state I myself, being Swedenborg, have been in now for 26 years, with the difference that I am in my spirit and my body at the same time, and only sometimes out of my body. And we're thinking in this week in the context of, wow, this spiritual state that Swedenborg got into, which if he can get into it, it's, it's, it's there as an available human state. How are we starting to almost match that state through technology? It's an amazing thing to think about. Anyway, that's our passage. Okay. Get your questions in the chat while you're typing those in. We're going to hear your answers because we put a question out to you and we want to know what you think about it. So our community manager, Karin, is going to fill us in on what you all had to say. Go ahead, Karin. 
Yeah, the question had to do with dreams because dreams have all sorts of spiritual imagery. The question was, we experience something akin to spiritual representations in our dreams. Has a dream ever felt so real that it feels like you grew spiritually or psychologically from the experience? And the responses were awesome and long paragraphs of cool stories. And I, it was painful to have to just uh, edit them down to the a line or two of the gist of it. So please go read the full version uh, on YouTube community tab or on our social media pages. But here's just uh, a summary of what some of you shared with us. So this is all having to do with dreams that uh, made changes for people. This is, um, this is one from someone who was uh, a, a child when her mother died and she had this visit from her mom that was a special day with her mom. <laughs> mom and I went out to lunch and danced and laughed. I no longer question the afterlife. Next one with her father. My father said, the separation is temporary. Now I assure others of that. A council of wise women told me nothing is ever, ever, ever lost. That has been medicine for accepting the death of loved ones. I awoke to loud and clear words, love through free will, not compulsion. And he said that was before he ever knew about Swedenborg, which, and it's a very Swedenborgian uh, concept. Right. I saw my husband and felt such joy and love. I'm not afraid to die anymore. I was unhappy in a marketing career. I dreamed my pastor was with me at a meeting, kindly asking what they were talking about. I got ordained three years later. A man with a cigarette was kidnapping my children. I awoke to find the house full of smoke from a stovepipe. And then a different dream. After reading Arcana Celestia, I dreamed of a giant blossoming tree. Ooh, cool. Dreams help me understand my difficult situations. I keep a dream diary. Yeah, I've done that, it's helpful. In a beautiful, peaceful town, I met three doctors who helped those who took their own lives. I believe it was heaven and it gave me hope and a wonderful feeling. I dreamt I was between a green lake and green vegetation. Years later, I lived near that green lake where I embarked on my spiritual endeavor in leaps and bounds. <laughs> my grandpa came to me and said, don't be afraid of death. I'm skeptical, I'm skeptical, but it changed me. Vivid dreams have helped put my mind at ease during spiritual trials. My dog was part of a group who greeted children who died from cancer. <laughs> Mom, the dream said, tell dad I'm fine and happy. I'm writing a musical about elephants. <laughs> this woman's <laughs> mother had loved elephants. <laughs> I was freaked out by a frightening dream. God led me to understand the dream wasn't a threat, but a reflection of my spiritual state at the time. In my teens, my cat appeared in a dream saying, after we die, we'll do things we loved doing on earth. <laughs> I've thought about how this applies to good and bad things. A friend's dream, a friend's dream message from my loved one about my secret visit with a medium was vital in getting me back on the right spiritual path. Mm. And finally, an angel showed me everything is connected by showing me the process of making cinnamon. <laughs> it made me appreciate every product that I have and every service I receive. Mm. 
there were more, but those are so cool. And I lo just love hearing how these very different kinds of dreams affected people. Yeah. And it's so fun because in the show, we talked about how people, how that's, you know, representations and different visual imagery is such a critical way that people uh, learn things in the afterlife. So it's so cool to hear about people really that that's really happens to us in our dreams. So, so cool. Nothing is ever lost. That's pretty good. Yes. Right. And a lot, you know, answers a lot of questions. And you think, just look at the, what those dreams are about. It's the most important stuff in life. Of course, of course we want to talk about this stuff. So thank you so much, everyone, for sharing that, that personal, powerful material. And now let's uh, talk more about what you want to talk about. We have our first question from Bren Webbs, who asks, is it possible to have died and not realize it? Can you, we're all, well, death is a pretty big fear out there and people will rank it way up there. I know people have a lot of fear around, am I going to die? What's going to happen? Could it be that oop, the worst thing that could ever happen happened, but you didn't even know that it happened? So uh, yeah, Chelsea, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, well, I just, you know, I, I grew up reading, I was raised in a church that taught Swedenborg's um, teachings. And so that's, I grew up hearing these stories, but this question for some reason just like brings to mind how sort of this wonder I had, even as a child, the the kinds of stories that Swedenborg tells where he says people who have died that don't realize they're even in the spiritual world. Like as a, even as a child, I like hooked onto that. Like what is going on there that, so it's something that's actually fairly common. Swedenborg says not, not in a way that I think you'd have to be afraid about, but like almost as a, a mercy as a gift, you know, as a sort of design to help people adjust is that life in a lot of ways sort of carries on and people are kind of led in gradually into this sense of, um, you know, you realize you're actually not alive in the same world that you were in before and sort of here's the reasons and, you know, angels can kind of guide people in that way. Um, but so it's, it's kind of amazing to think about those stories that there's a number of them that Swedenborg says where spirits newcomers to the afterlife don't realize they've died and then uh you know slowly come into an awakening of like oh wow i'm in the spiritual world and i could go visit heaven or what could i do you know so cool stuff it is a very gripping concept and i could certainly see as a kid wait 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 a second that, that makes me want to know more like what, what, what's going on that would allow for an existence like that um yeah karen do you have something it was cara Rizzi. oh cara oh <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, I too, as a child, this was imprinted upon me. I can remember very clearly an experience uh, at about age 12, 11 or 12, um, where I was just with my friends. We were in a beautiful woods walking up the creek in our shoes. And it was just so delightful and lovely. I thought, Maybe, oh, and driving to the lake, we had get, uh, lightning in a lightning storm and our car had gotten a jolt. And I thought, maybe we really are dead and we really are in heaven already. <laughs> but um, yes, as Chelsea said there, Swedenborg talks about people not, not realizing and having to be told like, you really are in the next place. And I have often wondered how that squares with other descriptions of how we wake up uh, in the other world surrounded by angels and things like that. So it's one of those places for me where um, 
I'm not quite sure how to, to jive a couple of different things that Swedenborg says, but I see that Karin's about to answer that question for me. Before Karin <laughs> does, before Karin gets in there, we got to say thanks to Alan. Alan has made a gift. We are now on the board with $50. So thank you so much. We're at the third of the way-ish to our goal. Thanks for your contribution. It'll go twice as far. Appreciate it, Alan. We really do. Okay, Karin, yeah, what do you think about uh, dying and missing the memo? <laughs> Yes, I, I um, get the impression from all that Swedenborg learned and witnessed that everything is for the sake of making the transition as, as comfortable and peaceful and joyful as it can be for us. And if you already like totally believe in an afterlife and are even looking forward to it, I, I don't see any evidence that you would have to wait to know that you have crossed over. <laughs> like you, yeah. you want, you know about that, you're looking forward to it and there'd be no reason for you to not know. And Swedenborg talks about angels telling people that they have crossed over. And so the only reason that there'd be any delay in realizing that is if that would be too shocking for you. So they'll just back mm -hmm. a little bit till you're ready. Or if you do not believe in an afterlife and you refuse to believe in an afterlife, because those were the most um, striking examples that Swedenborg observed that people not realizing they had died was because they do not believe in an afterlife. <laughs> right. And even when they were told, they would maybe go hmm, for a while, but then they'd go back to saying, no, you're lying. I'm not. <laughs> so the main thing that would delay that is a refusal to believe in an afterlife. Um, the second thing that would be much shorter is maybe that would be a little shocking and maybe you just need to adjust a bit. But if you're you're on board with that idea, there there will be no delay. You will you will real you will see your loved ones that have died. You will have angels telling you welcome to the afterlife. And um, there there is no problem at all. And I've had people um, over the years ask in comments, what if I've already died? And I would, I would say, if you believe in an afterlife, you would be told already if you had died. So don't stress about, about that. Um, I remember uh, a Swedenborgian minister one time thinking uh, in his, in his uh, mind, it was logical to think if I see children around, I think I haven't died yet because they go straight to heaven and I would be in the world of spirits. <laughs> so that was one, <laughs> you know, method he used to assure, no, I'm still on earth. Um, but, you know, if you believe in an afterlife and are looking forward to that, there'll be no delay. You can, you can know as, as soon as, as possible. And sometimes it can go in the reverse order. It seems like you can know that you're in the afterlife and then later stop knowing that. And it seems like Swedenborg describes this sort of afterlife amnesia, particularly if it, what you love doesn't want there to be an afterlife. So yeah, he would talk, he would talk many times to particularly people who are, had devoted their lives to some kind of evil, which evil really wants falsity. It really doesn't want to see life as it is. And so he would, he would talk to these people who, yeah, we're, we're coming at him and causing him problems and, and saying, there's no, there's no God, there's no life after death in the afterlife. And he would say, remember, you came into the afterlife. And they're like, what? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that happened. And then, then they'll remember it for a while, but forget. Um, because when you, the, the smaller your worldview gets, the more sort of dreamlike your state is. If you think about when you're in a dream, 
you go from place to place and you're very intent on what's in front of you, but you don't think like, now, how did I get to this house? It's not really my house. You just, you're focused on what's in front of you and not like, not always, I know the spiritual world is a lot clearer than here, but you can, I think at times, especially during the world of spirits, during your reformation and regeneration process, when you're getting sorted out, be in sort of a state where you're focusing on something and, and what's the, the task at hand enough to the point where you don't really realize, oh, right, right, right. I, I am here. But th- again, that would probably be a temporary thing unless you're, as Karin alluded to, actively loving something so harmful that it wants to not know the nature of, of how things really are. So there's a couple of, there's this undoing some of the comfort that Karin gave you, but. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of interesting that, uh, you know, I might guess that this person who's saying is asking the question from the standpoint of what I've heard, like Karen said, people have commented to us too, is that to like, to this, like Kara was saying, wait, life is great. Or, you know, have I already died and I haven't realized it yet? Like we can have that, you know, sort of a thought in our minds, but um, like what Karen was saying, I think also just the reality of, <laughs> of aging and things being difficult in this world and like, the weather changing, but it not being concurrent with your state of mind or something, you know, um, there's many things that can sort of assure you of the reality of the physical universe going on around you. Um, And, but then I think it's interesting and kind of funny that, uh, that Swedenborg and that his actual experience was that people did have it's not that people have that experience in the physical world, but that that's the experience that people have had in the spiritual world is that, uh, you know, in, in those circumstances where it's useful for them to think about it that way or be led gradually into an idea of how they're in the afterlife. So it's sort of a flip on what you might not expect the answer to be because of what Swedenborg experienced. So, Yeah, well, there's got to be some good flips out there if we already knew it all. You know, which we don't we don't know at all about anything else. We're always being surprised by discoveries. So hey, Bren Webbs, thank you so much. That was a great question. Let's take a look at the next one. This comes courtesy of William Boyd, who asks, Are there any writings about government of heaven? All around the world, I'm sure, particularly in the United States where the panel is living. Politics have been on people's minds quite a lot. And can't we just get some insight? How is there are we free of that in heaven? Is there other political systems? Is there government? And what kind? Cara, yeah, do you want to start us off? Yeah, just um, I know Swedenborg talks about visiting some community in heaven and meeting the leader, the prince, the chieftain. Um, like there is, there does seem to be government. Um, but the thing that drives the desire to govern is the desire to serve, which I guess is also true here sometimes. Um, but that's what it is. It's a love of uh, their, their particular love of how they're going to serve the community they're in. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think I'm pretty sure that's a chapter or a subsection or something in the book, heaven and hell that he specifically has a segment on the government in heaven. Um, and maybe also in the same vein, when he's talking about um, communities, how communities are organized and, and different, different sorts of things. So that's, there's a great, he kind of summarizes it. And interestingly, uh, you know, I wonder sometimes about how things, 
how things have changed since Swedenborg's time because he was experiencing uh, certain kinds of communities in heaven and but saying that there's this new heaven that's getting created and uh, and the fact that he was writing right before uh, the American Revolution and then you got the French Revolution just like these huge overhauls of what government looked like in Swedenborg's day was getting a total makeover uh, or it was on the threshold of that. And, um, and so ultimately, you know, Swedenborg says that the Lord alone governs heaven, but then there's organizations of, of communities and people working together. And so that there will be leaders and, you know, things like that. But uh, so anyway, there's, there's hierarchy and integration and things like that. But, um, but yeah, so I think there could be variety in that way. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's great to think about. Karin, yeah. Yeah, the the main thing for when you're talking about heaven is the government of heaven is the government of love. It's completely love and service driven, as Karin was um, alluding to. And on Earth, we get caught up in trying to decide what's the best outer form of government. <laughs> but it, really, if you think about it, any any outer structure of government could work if the inner um, intention was love and service. And so in heaven, the intention and intention is always love and service. And therefore it can take many different forms. As Chelsea was saying, Swedenborg was seeing some forms that would have been familiar in his day that were in certain communities in heaven with a, a prince, for instance. Um, I'm sure there's many other ways that communities are organized in heaven um, as times change with the human race, but it's always about how can uh, leaders are there in order to serve and love their community and, and the flip thing from what can happen on earth, not, not always, of course, but it can be the, the hierarchy is a whole different thing. Like Jesus said, he who wants to be greatest in heaven will be least and he who is least will be greatest. Just meaning those who are humble and really want to serve and have a, a big love for wanting to serve a, a whole community of people, they're going to be the leaders, but they don't consider themselves greater than anybody else. They are really truly there to serve. And so it's that, it's that, um, that love, um, force that makes it all work. And maybe you can think more in terms of the governing of the human body of the, of just how everything works so beautifully together. And the brain is kind of governing it, but it's, it's for the, for the sake of the whole, you know, that the whole will operate in the most uh, beneficial way for every part. And so it, it would take very different forms in the vast variety of heaven, but that is always the driving force, um, no matter what the form. Hey, I want to say real quick before I re return a bit to thoughts from Karen and Chelsea. Um, Stephanie and Linda, thank you so much. They each gave. We're we're now really appreciate you feeling like what we're doing is worth supporting. We're at one hundred and fifty dollars, so we're seven dollars away. <laughs> Anybody can be a hero right now. Push us up over to our one hundred fifty seven goal. Either way, that's three hundred raised because of the matching gift to support this programming. Uh, something that you both mentioned uh, is sort of the, the the Lord or the common good is behind all government in heaven. And it's the same thing because 
the Lord, we think of the Lord as a person, but really who we are as people is what we want. That's like what Swedenborg asserts about the nature of our life. And what God wants is the good of all. So the good of all is what drives everything in heaven. I do think it's interesting that Swedenborg talks about heaven as the kingdom of heaven, which is referred to in the Bible as a kingdom of heaven. You think of kingdom, it's a little bit out of date. There's not a lot of, it doesn't seem like the human race is moving towards monarchies. They, it seems like we have superior forms of government. I do think that the sense in which heaven probably still is a kingdom and will always be a kingdom isn't is there maybe there's probably government systems that are complex and ahead of where we are now but because everybody there is driven by the lord because heaven is accepting the lord and the lord is this desire for the common good it really is like one person you think about the lord is calling all the shots which is like a kingdom except it's the exact opposite because it's this total freedom and everyone's participating in it but they're voluntarily wanting to act in this kind of harmony like the body that you said so it's like the, the kingdom but the but also everything that's new at the same time yeah um, you're reminding me can i quick insert that i just from researching a, a future show i'm remembering uh the lord as a as like the soul in our own body like our our soul and spirit actually govern our body and uh the lord is the unifying force the lord's love is the unifying force of how everything is organized in heaven. So that is the, the ultimate governing <laughs> governing force, the Lord's love. Nice. And I was just remembering, so there was, I mentioned heaven and hell because uh, the person asking about like specific writings. And um, so if you're wanting to read, there's the heaven and hell book, there's a part on government there. And then I think in the book, New Jerusalem, he has a section on ecclesiastical and civil government. So um, but it gives kind of some of the same principles of what, yeah, of what's going on there. So research materials. <laughs> awesome. No, we, we need those references for sure. Thanks again for the question, William Boyd. Uh, so let's go on to our next one. This is from Peg B who asks, is it possible to have a near death experience, but not remember it? This is the sort of reverse, uh, I guess, reverse, it's a cousin of the question about can you die and not know it? Can you almost die and not know it? And, and not just, there's probably plenty of people who, well, actually, that brings up a good question. Is it that everybody who gets close to death has had a near-death experience but doesn't remember? Has, anybody, has anyone ever heard of uh, something like that happening? Yeah, Karen. I do get that question in comments. Um, and... Uh, I believe that, yes, um, just like we all dream at night, but I don't remember that many of my dreams. Some people remember a lot of their dreams. Some people just barely remember any. And when you wake up, most of your dreams you don't remember, <laughs> but they did happen. Um, I, I believe that near-death experiences do happen to people who are almost die, but if they don't remember it, that just means that that memory didn't easily come back into earthly consciousness. And Swedenborg even talks about sometimes when he was on um, a very high level of heavenly consciousness, um, when he would come back down more to his earthly consciousness, he either couldn't describe it anymore or he actually couldn't remember it all. And um, I've also heard that even in near-death experiences in which people do remember the experience, but there are things about it they realize they can't remember because it just couldn't translate back into earthly kind of thinking. So I do believe 
that people can have had experiences when they were almost died and not remember them, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Just somehow it didn't, couldn't uh, easily come back into that earthly thinking. Yeah, and another thing that that's making me think of um, from you, Karen, is that similarly, I think sometimes people have, I mean, I guess, I think near-death experiences, but I kind of have that as a synonym, synonym in my mind with like just, spiritual experiences are like where your spiritual eyes are opened and you're experiencing the spiritual world. And um, even if it's not like in a, you know, accident, real true near death situation. But um, I think of people in childhood that often there's sometimes people in adulthood will, you know, remember, Oh, I did have this experience when I was a kid. And when I was playing out, you know, I've heard that kind of thing where people have very sort of real impactful spiritual experiences where they feel like, heaven was open to them or, you know, had some sort of an experience and, uh, and then that can kind of go dormant and then resurface sometime later in life. So I think that's kind of a similar thing. Uh, yeah, I think it's pretty common for people, even who've had a classic near-death experience to remember it later. I've heard many people describe certain things later in their life, triggering a remembering of a near-death experience. They didn't realize that they'd had. So I would certainly imagine that applies to other spiritual experiences. That's a good point, Chelsea. All right. So I think let's, let's go to the next one. Cause I, I think this one is, is cool for, I think we'll get to do some good speculating on this. Although you guys may have some specific insights from Swedenborg, but I'd love to just run it over a bit. This is Colette Ormerod who asks, do the heavenly beings have different love languages or is that a human thing? I'm assuming we're talking about like the five love languages as made famous by some guy, which is, Hey, uh, what do you, right? is that what's right? that? Is it the Gottman Institute? No, Gottman. That sounds, that no, sounds that's not the right person. I don't think so for that one. Dan Gottlieb. Uh, no, we don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. So whoever it Sorry. is. Thanks. Just Google it. Five love yeah. languages. We're the only ones in the world who haven't looked that up on our phones right now. Uh, <laughs> but a brief rundown. This is this idea that people have different things that matter to them in different ways. And some people that what's your primary love language, what really makes you feel loved? Is it when people like give you physical touch or is it acts of service? Like if somebody does the dishes for you, then you really feel loved or is it uh, praise and affirmation? There's these categories of love that if, if you and your partner have different ones and don't realize it, you may do something that you think they're going to love this. This is going to make them feel great. Whereas that's not what they want and vice versa. So it does, it is a cool tool to, to have people learn how to take care of each other. And does this continue? I mean, or is everybody in heaven, their love language is playing the harp. So you just play the harp, right? Uh, Karen, yeah, let's, do you want to start us off? Well, when I think about that idea in terms of the afterlife, um, Swedenborg says that every single person has a different kind of love that is at the core of who they are, meaning what a different way of um, caring about life and what they care about most and what gives them pleasure. And so that is unique for everybody. Like everybody feels pleasure in, in a unique way. And the Lord is the ultimate, like knowing your love language and and bringing to you what will give you the most pleasure. And that's why everybody's crossing over experience will be a little different. Everybody's heaven there. That's why there's so many different kinds of 
communities in heaven and why God created these levels of heaven to accommodate all these different ways that um, people love to engage with life and love to uh, engage in their relationship with God. And so it is, um, I would say, just sort of the most general example would be uh, Swedenborg talks about the spiritual heaven, which is kind of the middle heaven and the uh, celestial or highest heaven. And in the spiritual heaven, they love to think of con- about concepts and ideas and, and uh, sorting that out and, and um, understanding the, the ways to love the neighbor and everything. And so they love to talk about ideas and, and share ideas with each other. And that's, could be seen as a love language, whereas the celestial angels are less interested in talking through ideas as doing, just doing, letting that love flow directly through into action. And that's what they love to engage in. Um, So those are a few thoughts about this tremendous variety and how people enjoy life in heaven and, and what the Lord provides for them in order to do that. That's great. And I love the point about the spiritual and celestial or spiritual and heavenly kinds of people and that there really are, sometimes people think of it as, oh, you're, you're just getting better as you go up those levels, but it's really a difference in what you care about and, and what you want to do. So that's great. Kara, yeah. Um, of course, we're all a unique individuals, as Karen said, in, in every way. Um, Swedenborg makes the point that no two faces are alike because no two spirits are alike. What occurs to me is that I think that for some people, those love languages are born out of like wounds in their past or something like that. Um, So that maybe somebody who never got a gift as a child, it becomes the thing that feels like love more than anything else Um, or something like that. Gifts is one of those love languages enumerated in this book that we don't know who wrote. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, and so I don't know, this is just occurring to me now that maybe that's where some of, some of those love languages came from is out of some kind of deficit in our heart that now is needing to, is wanting to be filled up in a new way. And on the other side, presumably those deficits will be healed in some way. And so there won't be that kind of um, limited um, need in order to feel loved or something like that. It's a thought. I have no idea. I love it. It's a great thought. And um, certainly, yeah, we, we don't know like what's sort of hitching along for a ride with us and what's really who we are, you know, and, and what we'll say. Nobody be alarmed. Yeah, I put on this hoodie. I was feeling a little bit chilly. Um, and before we move to the next thing, Gail and Miguel both donated. Our total is now 182. We are going to the bonus round. Bing, bing, bing. Someday we'll have sound effects. <laughs> yes, we, this is good enough. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody, for your support. Really appreciate it. If you're watching afterwards and you feel like oh i didn't get to do it off to left.com slash donate you can you still get your gift matched two times or matched by a hundred percent uh going towards this programming thanks to all of you you make this possible looking forward to those extra 15 minutes but we're not there yet these are just the regular minutes so let's uh let's keep rolling um 
Did anyone want to say anything more about the love languages or are we, we pretty set? Okay. Pamela Collins asks, if someone dies who decides they prefer to go to hell, does he or she still have a life review? A lot of life review stuff in near-death experiences. And I will say that the life review as it's in pop culture now, as it's described really succinctly as a thing, we get that from near-death experiences, not directly from Swedenborg. There's a lot of stuff that sort of pieces together that you see, oh yeah, he did talk about elements of that, but the life review is, is not something he says like, oh yeah, right when you go, you get this, it's not, at least it's not on the front page of his stuff. You have to dig in there to get it and find it. But life reviews as described in near-death experiences are really often about getting you to care about people. And, oh, this is how you made somebody feel. And this is how you can do things better. If you don't care how people feel, is it, are you just going to laugh at your life review? I mean, what, what's what's going to happen there? So do, do you get one of those or, or something like it if you're, if you're saying, I reject mutual love and want to go for love of self? interest instead. So Cara, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that um, the way I understand it, as Swedenborg lays it out, we all have this chance, uh, once we're done with our physical bodies, and we can get rid of some of those earth, earthbound um, concerns, that we have this chance to find out who we really are. What is it? What is it? Apart from the fact that we have to pay rent next month, what is it that drives us? And I think that's just in, I, I haven't thought of it exactly in terms of a life review, but I think that's what the purpose is when we arrive in the spiritual world is to, is to find out who, uh, who we really are, who we really want to be. And it's after going through this sort of educational and clarifying process that then we become clear. Oh, oh yeah, heaven's not for me. Um, so yeah, it's it's like the process of learning uh, and getting to know ourselves that just makes it clear where we belong in the afterlife. Great. Yeah, right. And, and uh, it's all about use. It's all trying to do something useful for us. Karen, do you have further thoughts? Yeah. Um, the the whole book of Revelation is about, you know, we've, we've talked about it is um, about the, la the last judgment in different forms. Um, there was an event in the spiritual world, but it's also about our own last judgment as we cross over, which means our own sorting out, sorting out, um, like Kara was saying, just getting clear on who we want to be. And definitely part of that, as you see in the imagery, is opening the seven seals and, you know, just all this um, exposure, which would, would be the life review, you know, seeing uh, how you lived your life, you know, you, you yourself looking at what went on in your life, what you did, what you responded, how you feel about it now. Of course, the main point is, how do you feel about it now? There you are in the afterlife looking at um, the impact that you had. Do you have regrets if you hurt somebody or do you not care? Um, and you, um, so it is your chance. Definitely there would be this unfolding process, this, which is the life review. It's this, the examination um, that you are, um, being shown, you know, you, you are making the choice, but without the clarity that the life review, um, offers, 
you are not clear yourself. And so my impression is nobody goes to hell until they have full, full opportunity to really evaluate their life and decide, yeah, that's what I still enjoy. And then you go to hell, but it is, you need to make that final call yourself. If that truly is the way you want to go, because God provides every last possible opportunity to turn around. If there is anything in you that doesn't want to continue hurting people that wants to turn the other direction. <laughs> so that's what the life review would offer. Oh, Curtis is muted. It would be so great to hear what he has to say. <laughs> and that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, order of operations that you may not really have much of an opportunity to say, I want to go to hell before you do this review process, because you don't really know. You don't know what you really want. Um, that's all. That's all I was going to say. Yeah, Chelsea. <laughs> okay. Um, I was just thinking, yeah, reflecting on what you guys are saying and everything. And I think um, one, one aspect that is a principle that I like to think about is that you have to work really hard to want to make evil and falsity, everything you love. You can't go to hell with any shred of goodness left in you because that's, that is part of heaven. So, and so part of that process in the world of spirits is the Lord and heaven and angels working together to find every last bit of nook and cranny of goodness and love in you and bringing it up and kind of coaxing you like, hey, you want to uh, make this like what you really care about. Um, and, uh, but if somebody continually is rejecting and even feels sort of, oh, thanks, get that away from me. I'm really interested in this. Then that's that process of eventually choosing hell over heaven. Um, but an element of this is that, it, that I think is important to remember is that heaven is all about accommodating who we are. So Swedenborg says that people who come from different religions and cultures in this world get, uh, you know, mentored by people who are similar to them in, in the world of spirits and, and angels. And, and so I would think, especially if there's somebody who feels like I am dead set on hell or however, you know, if they decide they prefer hell uh, or has that kind of clarity that they're going to be met. Like, I think the Lord knows better than anybody how to kind of like just arrange things just so, so we feel like we can open up and connect with that goodness that's in us. And so I think of like, you know, I kind of think it's the best characters in movies who are like the really mean, cranky, grumpy ones that you feel the best about when they like, you know, there's that cranky, uh, cook, you know, food reviewer in Ratatouille who like hearts, heart melts at the end of the movie because he ate that soup that brings back his, you know, childhood memories. And, yeah. and like, that's what heaven is really good at doing. Or like, that's what the Lord wants to do is like find every little nook and cranny of goodness in you and, and try to make that what you care about. Um, but respecting our freedom through that whole time. And so uh, if, so, yeah, so I, I feel like, I don't know, heaven can be, can kind of end up seeming like, this very, I don't know, cartoony, lovey-dovey all the time kind of a thing when it's like it, God's willing to come to our level and just work with us and talk to us straight. And like, you know, it's going to feel 
um, you know, like a good fit. And that's the sort of terrain that we have to work with where we're getting clear on what do we really care about. So that's a great point. I love that comparison you draw to the flipping of the cranky character in the movie because isn't that one of the great joys of of movie going is to see that happen and everybody roots for that Swedenborg talks about the remnant being this uh storehouse of goodness in in us from childhood on that is always kept safe in sort of a black box that God can do just what you were saying go in there and and stir it up uh, as as an effort because yeah I would imagine us saying, yeah, I want to go to hell. There's, there's going to be every stop pulled out to try to dissuade us from that. Uh, Kara or Karen, did you have any further thoughts? All right, then let's uh, let's move forward. Thanks so much for the question, Pamela. This next one is from Daffodil. And here we're going to get to do a little bit of biblical analysis. And it may be speculative analysis, because I don't know if we have a direct comment from Swedenborg. I see people have their Bibles ready. This is Daffodil asking, Romans 12.20 has always confused me about heaping coals of fire on your enemy's head. It seems contradictory. What is your take on it? And I'm going to read for all these those of you at home who haven't already looked it up. I'm going to read you it. Romans 12.20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> and... This is kind of, I can see why you'd bring it up. It's a strange passage. I think you should read uh, verse 21 too. Do you have that too? Go for it. Okay. And then, so it goes on and says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There you go. Okay. So that's, I'm glad that you brought that up um, because it puts a bit of a spin on it. It still is like a more aggressive take on Jesus's love your enemies. Because Jesus is saying, love your enemies. And you think like, oh, you're going to love them because you're going to turn them cranky to good. But this is sort of seeming like, hey, guess what? You want to really get your enemy feeling miserable? Be nice to them because it'll make them miserable. So <laughs> what? What? let's let's dig into it. What? what, do you, what how do you guys all read this passage? Is there anything in the, the Swedenborg language of correspondences or or thinking about it spiritually that, that opens it up a bit for you? Karen, let's, let's see what we can do. Yeah, it also comes right after a couple of verses that are urging people to not uh, be vengeful and not try to get back at people. And I think what it's saying here is um, not it, it's not about do it, you know, giving your enemy food if he's hungry, drink if he's thirsty, so that you will give him torture. It's a description that that goodness actually. Um, is painful to <laughs> to evil and it um it's it's like describing a reality a spiritual world reality and swedenborg uh um, two things come to mind one of our guests from the past sherry sweeney um described uh an experience one time where she was aware of a menacing evil spirit that was trying to intimidate her to stopping her from praying for a prison and um, when she ended up um, sending love energy towards this evil spirit, it went away. Like it couldn't stand that. Um, evil is uh, repulsed by, by goodness. Um, and it's just what happens. And that's, that is why uh, Swedenborg says that's why people run towards hell. If they um, 
are caught up in the pleasures of selfishness and greed because heaven actually is uh, painful. Like love, that love you are giving is actually painful. And so um, it's, I see it as more of a description of what happens. It would feel like Cole's, think of like if somebody's wanting to be really nasty to somebody and then that person does something really nice um, to them, hopefully their heart would change. But if somebody is just immersed in, I hate this person, they're just going to be angry and irritated that that person is trying to be kind to them. It's just a reaction. It's a, it's a kind of reaction to goodness. Um, so I think it's part of Jesus's teaching that don't uh, respond to evil with evil, um, respond with goodness. And that is going to actually be a deterrent to evil. Like it's like a protection um, because it is <laughs> um, uh, evil does not like goodness. Um, so think of it more as a, the, the instructions in the verse are saying, don't be vengeful, do good to people, even your enemy. And then I see that line as a description of the way evil reacts to goodness. So think of it more of a scientific uh, description. Yeah, that was the first thing that crossed my mind too when I saw the passage was the Swedenborg's phrase, evil carries within it its own punishment. It made me also think of how Swedenborg often describes people that are meditating on evil and love evil. He calls evil spirits. When they approach heaven, which is an atmosphere of mutual love, it causes great anguish in, in these evil spirits that are trying to get in, not because there's angels poking them or heaping coals on their head, but just because that's just, if you bring these two elements together, they, they react in that way. So yeah, great food for that. Chelsea? Um, yeah, I was noticing, you know, that there's quotes around that and I was looking it up and it's quoting when it's talking about the, if they're hungry, give them food and such and such, and then you'll be heaping coals on their head. That's referencing a chapter in Proverbs, Proverbs 25 uh, or 22 or something. What is 25. it? 25. Okay. And what just came up, which I find so interesting because it, it kind of rings true, even though I'm like totally out of my depth here is that, um, in a commentary on that verse, it was talking about this might be referencing some like Egyptian uh, practice, like a um, uh, you know an expiation ritual is what it was calling it, where uh, somebody would carry a thing of coals on their head as a symbol of repentance. Actually, is what the thing said, um, and. And you kind of, I love that when the Bible is using, like, we take it literally like you're, oh, it's like you're heaping coals on their head. That must burn and hurt. And it's like, oh, well, if it's actually like a colloquial sort of phrase of like, oh yeah, I've got the coals on my head today or something like that is like, I'm working on myself or, you know, doing repentance. And I kind of like that whole idea of it calling on how vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And like, so it's not up to us it's kind of like, don't worry about the plank in another person's eye, worry about the, or no, the speck, worry about the plank in your own eye is like, um, you know, the Lord wants to call everybody to repentance. And if we're doing the best we can for others, which is like showing love, trying to do the right thing in our life, then we're only going to be creating the circumstances that the Lord can work in these other people and bring them to repentance in themselves. Um, you know, so this sort of, there's that great quote from 
Gurdjieff, I think it is, but it's like, we should thank others for, you know, the issues they bring up in our life. Cause we're, you know, it's all about us doing our own spiritual work. Like that's what we really have responsibility for. And so I kind of see that that could be what this, this verse is sort of talking about. Well, if that's great research and it changes the headline, doesn't it? If this is referring to something different than just uh, dropping coals on somebody's noggin, <laughs> that certainly changes the vibe of it. Yeah. Hey, before we just say anything else, Bojan gave now. Thank you so much. We have $207 raised with, with, with our matching carry the one. It is $414 going towards uh, our programming. So thank you so much, everyone. Okay. Um, anybody else want to say anything about uh, that? Don't worry. We're sticking biblical here. The next question is from Tim Bragg, who says, how did Swedenborg interpret Revelation 12 and 13, which I believe Revelation 12 is the woman clothed with the sun, and then Revelation 13 is the beast coming out of the sea. So certainly the woman clothed with the sun features heavily in Swedenborg's worldview and theology. What is it? Uh, what's it all mean? Does anyone want to lead us off? Karen? Sure. Well, there's so many little pieces of symbolism in there. So we'll have to do shows on those to really dig into all the parts. But in general, the woman clothed with the sun is what Swedenborg calls the new church, the new church mindset. Uh, so um, the state of mind, the heavenly state of mind that the Lord is working to bring to earth and her child that she gives birth to is the doctrine of love. And the dragon who is trying to eat the child is um, the forces of faith alone, which we've talked about in other shows, which, which just means like ideas, particularly religious ideas that are separated, divorced from love. And so they get very harsh and they don't want to hear about love, just want to use these ideas for the sake of power and things like that. Um, so that whole chapter is about this the Lord uh, bringing into being this, you know, working to bring this new church mindset to earth and uh, um, the reaction from forces of evil in the human heart and mind that want to oppose that and are going to try to um, persecute that. And in the story, the woman has to go be protected in the wilderness for a time and time and half a times because the dragon's after her, basically like, the whole attitude of, no, I want my ideas are right and yours are wrong, so I want to destroy you, <laughs> um, is the dragon trying to destroy that doctrine of love and that heavenly state of mind. I'll just quickly say and then let other people talk that uh, the next chapter 13 with the beast coming out of the sea is more about that attitude of um, uh, faith alone or uh, ideas divorced from love because it says the beast is uh, given authority by the dragon. So they're both symbols of this um, very harsh way of using religious ideas for the sake of gaining power and control over people and not caring about them. Um, so maybe I'll stop there to see if anyone else has anything, but uh, that's sort of a very general <laughs> symbolism. Well, and this is a this is a lesson for you, Tim. Be careful what you wish for when you ask about Swedenborg's interpretation of the Book of Revelation, because it's there. <laughs> We're not just going to say, "Oh, you know, that means love your neighbor." Or th 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 there's a lot in there, and as Karen mentioned, we really doing one show just for one chapter. We're often overwhelmed. 
So there's a ton in there. That was a great summary by Karin. Chelsea, Carl, do you have anything to expand on or any reflections on that, that symbolism? Yeah, I guess just that uh, this kind of came across in what Karin was saying, but you can kind of apply the same thing generally to any part of the Bible with Swedenborg's, how Swedenborg interprets it, which is that uh, there's sort of this collective human history kind of timeline, like these ages that, that uh, we're going through collectively on this um, in our world. And, but then also it's about each of our own personal experience. So there's, he's sort of the woman clothed with the sun and all this imagery is kind of like this, the new church that's coming that is affecting everybody. And he goes into tons of detail about that, but then you can also really think about it, it going on in your own life and your own personal timeline. So those both are just applicable here. Yeah, I want to just add there that, yeah, you can think of it as the Lord trying to introduce this heavenly mindset and doctrine of love into your life and all your lower ego stuff that's going to try to oppose that. <laughs> yeah, Cora. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to say to Tim that um, Swedenborg didn't necessarily break down every book of the Bible verse by verse, but he did do that for the book of Revelation. So his book called Apocalypse Revealed will do that for you. If you want to chase it down, you can go read what he says about chapter 12 and chapter 13. And Apocalypse Revealed is only two volumes long. So it's like not impossible. <laughs> people, people have survived reading Apocalypse Revealed <laughs> at times. And something that's striking me when you y'all were talking about the woman clothed with the sun being this image of the new church and whatever, however the new church actually manifests and whatever its relationships are in particular to the ideas in Swedenborg's writings, because there's times when it seems like it's this big thing that's going to come out of the human race in all these places. There's other times where Swedenborg talks about, well, this is going to be the theology or the worldview of the new church. And he lays it out in books. You know, it's in some ways, like all th these ideas that all of us here on the channel are, and I'm talking about all of you who are watching and all of us who are making and we've all got this shared thing where we're really moved by this picture of the world that's being presented, that it, it, it's a it's a beautiful picture of the world. And that in a way, that's us, you know, seeing the woman clothed with the sun. Like that this is this is how this reality is in this way that God is reaching out to us. So what is the what does Revelation 12 mean? Well, it's it's the kind of relationship you can build with God when you have this particular view of life that, that we seem to be getting here and other people get in their own ways. But I don't know. It's just like yeah, she's around. Mama Close the Sun is around. You've probably met her, and even if you don't know it. So, um, okay, let's, uh, hey, we're, we're about to, we're like 30 seconds away, so let's just say it now. We're in our bonus round. Thank you, everybody who contributed for putting us here. We're going to get to, yeah, who would want to stop right now? we got to keep this rolling. The next question is from Nana Rosebud, who asks, when we dream, do we go to a special place? Or does it happen solely in our head or imagination? That's a great question. And yeah, are we are we taking night trips or is it just the stuff in here is switching around? How does that mechanism work? Uh, Karen, do you want to begin? Sure. Yeah, it, it definitely the the world of dreams definitely seems to be a connection with the spiritual world. And our spirits are already in the spiritual world and we can become um, conscious of different levels of that, depending on our state of mind at very 
different times in life or different times of the day or whatever. And um, Swedenborg talked about um, our dreams are depictions of angelic conversations. Um, sometimes even spirits are playing roles of different characters in our dreams. Um, so it's, it's amazingly complex. And yes, I do believe that we are, uh, you know, our spirit is experiencing things during the night as we're sleeping. Um, it, that it's not just just imagination. There are things going on. Our spirits are encountering other spirits, um, and uh, it's being played out in symbolism. So there's just some thoughts to start with. Great. So so it's definitely an intersection of our personal world with a larger world all around us. What else? Yeah, I think that. Um... There's, it's interesting, it, it reminds me of the passage that we read at the beginning of the show that we're raising, reaching our goal of 157 that we reached is uh, how Swinborg is saying that even in the spiritual world, spirits have their bodies, their spiritual bodies in one place while their spirit can appear and be exploring the spiritual world in lots of other places. So I think even it's hard enough for us to think about how that works for us in dreams, but then to contemplate how that's really working in the spiritual world is a little bit uh, interesting too. And because it's one of those things, so I don't know if these thoughts are helpful at all, but I think of um, Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz and how, you know, she's in her house and her house, the whole house gets whisked away to <laughs> the, the land of Oz. And um, that, you know, because Swedenborg says how we are in the spiritual world already as to our spirits and that we're even kind of building our house there, like that we actually have a, a home, but at the same time, that home can kind of change its uh, coordination, you know, like where it is in the spiritual world. So it's, it's tough to not think about it in terms of like physical world time and space, but, um, but I think there's kind of somewhere we exist as far as our spiritual body and Swedenborg says that when people are in deep meditation, their spirits can become visible to spirits in the world of spirits. So there seems to be like, there's a place where we exist in the spiritual world. And, uh, but that might not be visible or it might only become visible in certain, like there's a way that spirits minds interact with each other that isn't necessarily, you know, limited by where they are actually in proximity to each other. So, cause Swedenborg says how angels are watching over us while we dream and love to guard us while we're dreaming. But does that mean angels are coming to our spiritual house? You know, I don't know. Um, and uh, so there was one, anyway, this, I had one other thought, but it's jumped from my mind. So I'll let somebody else talk and then I'll see if it comes back to mind. Okay. Yeah. If it, if it returns, we'd love to hear it. Cause I really enjoyed those ones previous <laughs> to it. It just struck me. That this show today is representations in heaven, Swedenborg Live, and the kind of things that we were just discussing in Revelation, this like woman clothed with the sun, a dragon's going after her, a beast is rising out of the sea, all this fantastical stuff. That sort of thing is part of this phenomenon of representations. I would imagine a good portion of our dream imagery is falling under the same category of occurrence, that the, the stuff we have there, and actually this is undeniable because as as was mentioned conversations between spirits and angels and things show up in our dreams not as their conversations but as representations of their conversations so um, imagery and scenes and um situations and this the weird stuff we go through in dreams 
it's in some way this representation of what's going on. So it's it's very on point. Chelsea, is it back? <laughs> I did remember what I was going to say, and I'll I'll put it out there, and then Cara can take it over. But it was just this idea that we know the way the physical world works that two things can't take up the same space. Like you you just can't. Not even neutrons or like little bits of atoms. They can't be in the same space. And I think that that is still the case in the spiritual world. Like, I think there is some place where you are that nobody else can be. Um, and so even though if you're not thinking about it in terms of time and space, I kind of think there is a special place where you exist in the spiritual world. Um, and that's kind of your locus for everything that we experience, whether it's dreaming or thoughts that we're having. So that was that. Good, good. Well, that's, it always feels good when the, the one that got away didn't really get away. So cool. I'm, I'm glad we got to share that with everyone. Yeah, Carl. Yeah, this, I don't know. It's, it's just, I don't know exactly how to say it, but the thought is, that isn't it true that if we are deprived of sleep for a long time of a long time, we die. Like you have to sleep in order to maintain your physical existence. Um, so that, and, and what happens in sleep is that we're dreaming. I'm just, my point is it must be an essential thing. It's not just fluff. It's not just, um, you know, it doesn't matter imagination. It's something real. Yeah. Wherever we're going, when we're dreaming, it has to be something real because it's so important to our survival. I don't know. That's a great point. Yeah. Bringing that in. And it's true that, it just seems so disjointed and random what we're going through. You would never think this is part of an essential process, but you, you're absolutely right. You don't do it. It's over. So it is accomplishing. There is method in that madness. It seems like that's, yeah, God just in his flip-flops on his off time, but no, he's working. There's work there going on. Okay, let's go to another question. We got time for at least one more. We'll see. Uh, this is from The Cube. The Cube asks, refusal to believe is the greatest sin. Is this true or a falsity? Have you heard of this? I'm not sure if I've ever heard that phrase, but the concept stands in front of us. Is the greatest sin refusal to believe? Karin. I would say, no, the greatest sin is to refuse to love anybody besides yourself. That That's the greatest sin. Swedenborg says that what uh, makes up the core of hell is complete self-centeredness, which is a refusal to consider anybody else's lives or needs or anything um, as important as your own. And so that is what gets you the furthest away from God, who is the love of everyone, like the complete love of everyone. So the greatest sin is to refuse to love others um, and believing it, Oh, we usually on earth have this idea of believe meaning an intellectual thing. Like I, I intellectually believe something and that is uh, in spiritual terms can get us kind of bogged down a bit if we have ideas that are problematic. Um, but that's not going to keep us from heaven. If our heart is willing to love others, like the Lord can untangle that, um, it's not so difficult as refusing to love. Um, but when you think about uh, a broader um, way of understanding the word believe is to, is to live 
um, what you what you think is important, like to live the teachings of Jesus, for instance. We did a show that was pointing out that to believe in Jesus doesn't mean to just intellectually believe and intellectually declare a, a verbal belief, but to but to live, but to live those teachings. And so that kind of believing is more on the side of the loving side of life. It's um it's uh, refusing, you know, uh, it's a sin to refuse to do good to anyone beyond yourself. Um, so it's about love rather than intellectual belief. Great. Very clear. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think just a thing to tack on to that that comes to mind is that, um, yeah, I would say that that's not the greatest sin, but uh, to really, because something, a sort of application you can make is to think about uh, what Swedenborg says is it's really always about your intention. What's the motivation? And that's connecting with what Karen's saying. So it couldn't be that your refusal to believe is the greatest sin because people could have different intentions when they're refusing to believe something. And maybe one is coming from a good place and one is coming from a, you know, more that more self-centered harmful place. So, um, so that's just another layer is to the truth is really a matter of intention, which comes from love. So that that's kind of the, the, we have a show on how to test a spiritual idea and that, that, uh, gives some good ideas on that. Yeah, absolutely. The belief is, it's great, but it's really pretty transient. You think of water and how it's just, it comes and goes and you know, belief and ideas corresponding to water, truth or falsity. We say the body is, is almost all water, but that water is constantly changing, right? You're, you're letting it out in all these different ways. You're bringing in new water. Swedenborg talks about people in the spiritual world who had the right beliefs, but because they loved what was evil, they they tossed those beliefs out because it doesn't fit with it. He talks about people who had incorrect beliefs, but because they loved what was good and attended, as Chelsea was saying, what was good, the right beliefs come in. It's really that beliefs can get we you know out with the old, in with the new. They they really only mean something as you use them to change your intention or to fortify intentions within you. So they're great, and water is great, but it's just it just flows downstream where it is not like whatever we want to compare it to the earth around it, which is, is much more difficult to change. So let's see, we have time. We got time. Let's do another one. Okay. The last question today comes from Sean Smith. Thank you everyone for typing in your questions. If you didn't get yours answered or you're coming in later, just write it as a comment on this video. Our awesome moderation community team will get right on it. Sean Smith asks, is it possible? Oh, and this is a great note to end on. Some, some geeking out, as they say, about new church, Swedenborgian metaphysics, new heaven. Is it possible that a unity of the spiritual and celestial heavens, so the, the inner and the innermost heavens, is the new church? Is the new church, and that's there's a couple cool angles on that. Is it actually like a restructuring of the spiritual world? And is it a joining of these sort of head and heart that each one represents, but uh, how's that, how's that strike everybody? Cara? Ah, uh, that, that is such a great question. I remember when I was uh, working on helping translate the Arcana Celestial Secrets of Heaven, there was a section that was describing this special little heaven that is the interface between the, the celestial and the spiritual heavens. And it did sound like that is the place to be. <laughs> I mean, it just sounded like 
That's it. That, that's what it's all about. So I don't have an answer for Sean. It, this just re reminded me of translating that section and thinking, wow, I had never thought of that. That's cool. Um, what was coming to my mind also is not exactly, it's just a thought, a non, another non-answer is that um, uh, they, uh, one famous line or a popular line that Swedenborg has to describe the new church is that it's the crown of all churches that have hitherto existed in the world. And people have interpreted that to mean, you know, well, we're the best <laughs> or something, but I really think there's a cool way to understand crown. It can also mean garland. There's a lot of interesting translations. And I like to think of, you know, similar with Carl was saying that that place that has kind of uh, the both meeting is that, um, you know, there's, when you understand what the qualities of the new church are, you can see them everywhere. And those good qualities in, in whatever the container is, is the new church. Um, and, uh, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like I haven't reviewed this information in a while, but like the different levels of heaven, the spiritual level, as he says, or the spiritual kingdom and the heavenly kingdom have kind of an inner and an outer aspect to each of them too, you know? So there's kind of like layers within the layers and, so anyway, I just kind of think of the, uh, you know, broadly, the new church is kind of that, those highest, uh, you know, most centered on love ideas that we, that we have. Yeah, very integrated dynamic geography of the spiritual and heavenly heavens. He even sometimes talks about you know, both occurring on the same mountain, but one is higher up that mountain and then there's lower down. So there's certainly, yeah, a lot of nuance there. Karin? I picture um, just the new the new church era, which Swedenborg was promised is coming, is will be a, a, a softening of all those um, barriers between levels. Think of our inner and outer self. So, a lot of our life on this in earth, on Earth, <laughs> um, we feel a very big separation between our inner self and outer self. They're sort of at odds. But as we regenerate those are just so much more integrated and talking to each other freely. And I think that the new church era will bring you still, there's still a use um, to having those different levels. And actually there, it's not so much one above the other, but one within the other. Um, uh, just like there, there would just be sort of the deeper and deeper aspects of any given thing. And I think that in the new church era, what we're going towards is a, a, a loosening of all those um, seeming separations so that the communication between all the levels is uh, more free and open and um, we're aware of it more. And the only reason there were any sort of separations to begin with was for the sake of protection. You know, God had to set up these protective <laughs> uh, barriers for the sake of, um, you know, things not uh, messing with each other. But as that just, uh, the problems get less and less as the grand regeneration of the human race, um, that's not needed anymore. And I think there will be um, a more free uh, integration and exchange between all the um, aspects of heaven, uh, whether you call it layers or levels or communities, it'll just all be more free flowing. I love that. And I love that word I think you used was like integration. Um, and it made me think of our show, the psychology of Jesus and the different levels that we 
um, showed that were these different levels in Jesus's own mind, which is a picture of the process we all go through. And ultimately the, the sort of key to them all was what Benjamin represents that really kind of made everything integrate. Everything could connect once you had Benjamin there. And then this whole process was kind of complete. And uh, I feel like that has that ring of truth to it where it's like, the new church is kind of the culmination of the process or is like a regenerated human being, which is a reflection of the Lord, the divine human one. So that whole, uh, so I feel like that can give us a picture seeing what the Lord's process went through and those, that integration that you reach is really that the coming of the new church. So that's a cool idea. And a great note to end on there. A great, a great sort of uh, inspirational vision We've reached the end of our time, even of our bonus time. We're actually even a little bit over. We gave a little bonus on the bonus time, which we're happy and happy to do. Uh, I want to say thanks to everybody who gave. We had five donors, one brand new donor. Thank you to Alan, Stephanie, Linda, Gail, Miguel, Bojan. Wait, did I read six? Anyway, the point <laughs> is we raised $207. Thank you. And we're going to put that right into you. So it'll go twice as far with your matching um, and what are we going to do with it? Well, we're going to keep bringing you programming. For example, on Sunday, we got our podcast, Inside Off the Left Eye. The episode is the link between technology and what it means to be human. Don't miss that. Then Monday, the very next day, the spiritual link between the human brain and consciousness. So let's keep the good times rolling. Thanks to the panel. It was great to get to hear from all of you and, and sort of drink in your wisdom here. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you everybody for your donations and questions and being in the chat and watching. Uh, we so appreciate you. Have a great rest of your day. Yes, so great to have uh, this chance to do sort of spiritual uh, calisthenics with you guys. Thank you. <laughs> nice, yeah, thank you so much to everybody and to all my fellow panelists. It's always super fun to get to hang out and think about these things with you guys. Okay, everybody. Keep on uh, shining your light and uh, we'll see you next time we see you.